With the state of national emergency being extended another week, many of you have got in touch wanting to know more about what a state of emergency actually technically means. Beyond loosening funds for disaster relief, what else does it mean? How does the state of emergency embolden powers of those in authority? And what does it mean for you and me? Professor John Hopkins from the University of Canterbury's Law Faculty is the Director of the Institute of Law, Emergencies and Disasters, and he joins us now. Kia ora, John. Oh, John, are you there? Or have I lost you? We're going to get John back in just a moment, but we will go to, well, let's see. Let's see what we'll go to. We'll go to a song, or we'll go to our next interview. We'll go to a song. Oh, we've got John. All right. Kia ora, Susanna. the phone played up. <laughs> well, there's nothing like a phone just to play tricks on us at this hour. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> With me looking around and Blair doing magical things. <laughs> Glad to have you back. <laughs> just nothing like a burst of adrenaline at 29 minutes past 10. Absolutely. Well, listen, let's get into it. Can you explain for us, when we talk about the state of national emergency being extended, what does that mean? Yeah, so it's it's uh, it's, a, it's a legal term, as you know. It's um, it's under the Civil Defence and Emergency Management Act. We, the government, um, uh, the minister responsible, can declare these states of emergencies. They only last for seven days, which is why we're getting an extension now. Um, you probably get several extensions, so you'll get this happening on seven-day cycles. It can actually be extended uh, for as long as you want, but always in a seven-day period. Um, the the act itself gives a number of powers to to the government, um, two types basically, um, a series of specific law, uh, excuse me, directional powers. So, for example, you can evacuate people, you can um, uh, um, take over buildings or take over over uh, 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 vehicles or anything like that, or move vehicles, all that sort of stuff, or or actually break into, into cars and physically move them, so quite some specific directions and also a general direction to do anything that will get uh, that, that will stop the disaster getting worse or um, or stop somebody from doing something that's going to make the disaster getting worse. So that's a series of powers. They actually apply in, apply in local states of emergency as well, and those will apply in all the regions that the state of emergency applies to. And then alongside that, we've got the specific powers that apply in national states of emergency, which basically gives the government through the what we call the controller, which is the head of civil defence usually, and that's what it is at the moment, um, the power to direct any aspect of the state, and that includes local government, to do anything to assist with the emergency. Hmm. So quite broad, quite powerful, one could suggest. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, these are pretty extensive. They're not as extensive as... They used to exist in New Zealand. Up until the late 80s, we had some quite dangerous legislation which had been abused in the past, and that was removed. And instead, we have the, the, this, the CDM Act, which is less broad than in some overseas countries. So it's quite tightly prescribed in some ways, because um, although they, there is this power to direct, it's only the power direct of the, of the state um, you know, so local governments and so on. So it can see centralisation, but it, it's not unlimited. It is, 
it's constrained. Um, uh, having said that, as you say, this is extensive power and it wouldn't be used in a normal circumstance. Is there, why does it only last for seven days? I think that you, the clues in, in what you said, I, these are quite powerful uh, powers, extensive powers, and they upset the system of government that you, we usually have in New Zealand. So normally, of course, local governments have the ability to, to operate independently. Um, they still will do in this act, except for the fact if, if the, the controller insists that they, that they undertake a particular action. So you can see how in a state of emergency, you, you might want to, for example, direct the defence forces, to direct other agencies from around the country to do particular things to assist. Um, but you wouldn't want that to be happening on a daily basis. You wouldn't want to, to have um, the government to be able to intervene at a whim, because remember, these are directions, these are not laws. These are just that they can direct the state, the apparatus of the state. We wouldn't want that to happen uh, on a daily basis, hence why you constrain it to these, these seven days. And who's involved in the decision-making for it to be extended? How does that bit work? Well, there's two, yeah, there's two main players. It's a, it's a very complex act, but the, there's two main players. In terms of the extension, that's the minister responsible, although in reality one assumes that this, the prime minister is heavily involved. But the minister responsible, that's the minister of, of uh, emergency management and uh, civil defence, um, they, they will make the decision, although th- that decision has to be based on a particular um, set of facts. So basically, if a one region or one regional civil defence organisation cannot cope, then they, they'll, they have the ability to declare the national emergency. That's the trigger when it gets too much for one, for one agency. Local, civil, local emergencies are actually quite common. I think we had, I can't remember how many we had last year, but several in, in, annually. And so those could continue um, when, uh, even when the national state of emergency ends. But the other point to make out is that while the emergency is in place, a lot of these powers are not directly being exercised by the minister. They're exercised by the, um, the controller, who is the director of civil defence. Although the minister can require them to undertake actions. But one assumes in the main that these are being exercised by the, the ministers, excuse me, the controller, the director of civil defence, to uh, you know to address issues on the ground. How does New Zealand's laws for emergencies and disasters compare with other countries? Yeah, that's an interesting question because on the face of it, they're quite tight, and and this so what I mean by that is they're quite constrained. So the, the government can't just do what it wants. If, if you look at the powers in the Act, they are specific. Um, so, as I mentioned, there's powers around evacuation, there's powers of um, requisitioning vehicles and things like that, but they're very much specific. They can't just do anything. There is this general power of uh, to direct an individual, which can be exercised by either the police or um, somebody acting under the instructions of the civil defence, uh, the, the controller, to, uh, to do something to stop the emergency or not do something if it's going to make the emergency worse. But that seems to be, the police and, and others involved seem to be reluctant to use that general power. We saw that during COVID. The police, although they had emergency powers, didn't seem to like using them. So although it's there, it's, it seems to be more of a, more of a threat than a, a real power. But you've got other examples overseas. Um, you'll, you'll often find what are called dictatorial powers, whereby for limited periods of time, you get very extensive powers that are outside the law, very limited 
uh, controlled by by the the courts. You see, that's an, a normal model in many European countries. But I think there's a bit of a there's a slight um, the, the difference isn't that great because as we've seen in in Christchurch and elsewhere, what tends to happen is that the government once the emergency is finished or or not or, or that they don't want to continue with the state of emergency they tend to then pass uh, laws which allow them quite extensive powers over a long period of time and of course we saw that with the Sarah Act we saw it less so with the COVID emergency um, in many countries that they, those acts wouldn't be allowed they would be a breach of the constitution they'd be, they, um, it wouldn't be possible to pass them but of course the nature of our constitution the nature of our parliament and the fact that oppositions tend very rarely to oppose a government in the midst of a disaster or, or when the recovery is underway means that it's, it's quite easy to pass those pieces of legislation. So although on the face of it, our system looks different um, and, and much more within the law, uh, it's actually easier to change the law here so that so the government can give it quite extensive powers and it has done so usually in, in the longer term around these incidents. So do you think as a result of the current state of national emergency, we could see some change in our laws? I wouldn't like to gaze into the crystal ball. Um, And of course, although I see the reports like everybody else up in, and my heart goes out to the people um, struggling with the aftermath of the cyclone, having lived through the earthquake down here, I um, am well aware of the the long slog ahead. Um, But there there are some changes to the law. So we now do have something called a transition period in the, in the Emergency Management Act. That didn't exist during the Christchurch earthquakes. Um, that gives the government a bit longer. So after an emergency, you can declare a transition period for 90 days. Um, and again, that can be repeated. Now, the reason that's, there's two reasons why that's important. Firstly, recovery, as of course, as everybody will now discover up there, and we know very well in Christchurch, lasts a long, long time. And many of the powers that, um, or you might might be that the, the powers that you've got at the time aren't really what you want. You need more. And governments don't like being in states of emergency for a long time. Um, it's a bad look politically to have your, your country in a state of emergency. People often don't understand it's only part of the country. So I don't know if other people have experienced this, but certainly in, in Christchurch and at the university, we've had people inquiring about our safety after the cyclone, failing to realise that it really has no impact on us down here. So they will want to stop the state of emergency and they've got this option of a transition power, period, excuse me, of 90 days, which again gives pretty extensive powers to central government and the ability to to direct that recovery. So they'll, I suspect they'll use them. Then the question will be, will will that be enough in the longer term? And we saw after Christchurch and of course after Kaikoura, um, that, that the government said that that was not the case and they wanted to have new powers. I'm, I'm not going to predict as to what happened, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't be surprising if that did occur, because I think there's political reasons why the government wants to give itself, would want to give itself additional powers uh, for longer term, uh, given the nature of the size of the recovery ahead. Very interesting to speak with you tonight, John. Thank you very much. Appreciating the insights and your knowledge and, yeah, just where we're up to with this. I I expect that we'll circle back and have another conversation with you at another time, and I look forward to it. (laughs) I'm happy, happy happy to do that. Thank you.
That was Professor John Hopkins from the University of Canterbury's Law Faculty. He's the Director of the Institute for Law, Emergencies and Disasters. And we were talking about what the state of national emergency actually means.